And so welcome everyone. It's uh, great to see some familiar faces, some new faces among uh, the participants. Uh, thank you all for participating. It is very difficult, the busy times for everyone. We realize everyone is busy. And thank you to Tonya for being here today for a championship of health equity. I'm Renata Schiavo and serve as the founder and president of the board of director of Health Equity Initiative. And as you know, Health Equity Initiative is a member-driven nonprofit membership organization. We work to building a global community, a bridging silos across different professions, communities, and disciplines in support of health equity. By bringing together and enlisting the public and private sector, professions and communities that have both taken an influence in the different social determinants of health that we really try to advocate for solution to improve conditions and improve equity in health for all. So today's Community Leader Forum is very important for us because it's basically an important step forward in our capacity building and advocacy efforts. And since our inception, Health Equity Initiative has already made community engagement and multi-sectoral partnership as a key strategic area of focus. And community engagement and ownership is not just a catchy phrase. I can guarantee you at Health Equity Initiative uh, because a lot of our work is really inspired by recognizing the expert in everyone and making sure the voices of community and community leaders are heard and all programs and interventions are inspired by basically the, you know, the, the needs, priority and preferences of communities. So now we know that COVID-19 has exposed a lot of existing inequities. Uh, we know that basically uh, marginalized communities, black and brown communities, other communities of colors, uh, vulnerable and underserved communities have been really affected disproportionately by COVID-19. This has also brought in the front line this issue of health equity, which for all a lot of us, this is an exciting moment. Finally, people speak about racial and health inequities. It's also a very frustrating moment because I often wonder where have people been? Didn't you know that wasn't this something that really, you know, we should have paid attention before? So, but one thing that we are result about, and I'm sure that you are also result about, is to making sure that this moment stays with us and that we capitalize on it to advance health equity. So a lot of the discussion on policy solution have been involving only very large organizations. Uh, and so for us, it was important to listen to the voice of community leaders because we really committed to making sure that all interventions, uh, to advocate for making sure that all of the interventions and policies are informed by the voice of community leaders. So we are here today to give voice to communities that you represent, to make sure that policy Policy change is informed by the policy, by the priorities, needs, and the preferences of the communities you serve and represent. And we are really looking forward to hearing from you, uh, from your experience, from your ideas at this difficult time. So thank you for your dedication to improve the health of our communities. We know that uh, it's a lot. So with that said, I wanted to welcome Tonya Louise Lee who never needs an introduction, but she, among others, an entrepreneur, producer, writer, advocate, health equity champion, the founder of Movita, and a mom. So we are grateful for our friendship to Health Equity Initiative. So Tonya, 
go ahead and thank you again for being here. She's going to offer some remarks on COVID-19 and the impact on our communities. Thank you, Tonya. Renata, thank you so much. And thank you, Health Equity Initiative, for inviting me to participate in this important conversation with all of you. Um, and I, I want to welcome and thank all of our panelists for being here to talk about how COVID is disproportionately impacting our communities and specifically what's going on in your communities. Um, as Renata said, it's really important to, to, to do this work community up. So it's important that we understand what's happening in your community so that we can really serve you. Um, you know, as COVID began to ravage the country, I think, and, and Renata spoke to this, uh, those of us who, you know, those of us here knew what was coming, I think, to some extent. The black and brown communities would be hit harder. Uh, before COVID, we were already in a health crisis. This isn't, this isn't new. We know that in America, the healthcare system has been problematic. Uh, we know that the high rates of dis disparities, particularly in infant and maternal health, which is what my focus really is, um, that those are the indicators of a health of a nation and that the United States is not doing well. We're the only industrialized nation in the world where maternal death is on the rise, which is led by black women. And that is the indicator of the health of a nation. So when COVID hit, we knew the healthcare system was weak to begin with, and we knew it was biased as well. It was inevitable that the disparities we have seen in infant and maternal health, along with the disparities across the board, would show up with COVID on the loose. What was astonishing to me, as Renata alluded to, uh, was as the data began coming in, that it was a shock and a surprise to so many in the media, to our TV doctors and our, some of our so-called leaders. You know, night after night, for a few nights anyway, which was good, uh, they asked, why is this happening? How can this be? You know, um, and on the one hand, I was happy about the conversation, right? As Renata said, like, I was happy that at least people were waking up and understood that this was an issue. But I was also frustrated. Um, the discussion seemed to stall at the idea that black and brown communities index higher when it comes to obesity levels, that we have underlying conditions which contribute to our deaths with COVID, and, and basically our overall poor health became another headline. Uh, and in fairness, there was talk about how we as black and brown people are on the front lines, uh, not necessarily able to shelter in because we're keeping the nation running by farming, packaging our food, uh, working in the grocery stores, providing public transportation and public works so the rest of us could survive. But I was really looking for a deeper dive into why we overdex in comorbidities and obesity in the first place. Um, my armchair analysis of the impact of COVID uh, on black and brown communities from the beginning was that it would be bleak. Um, as I said, healthcare, specifically hospitals in our community have been defunded. They, they don't have the resources. They were not prepared for this kind of emergency. They were barely prepared for any emergency to begin with. And implicit, and, and implicit bias is real. Black and brown people know this, and so often we try to avoid hospitals or healthcare until it's too late. My father, uh, a very healthy guy, former CEO, has great insurance, who lives in Florida, told me early on in COVID, if I get sick, I'm not going to the hospital. Because I know that as a 79-year-old black man, if the resources are scarce, 
they're not going to give me the life-saving measure over a younger white patient. The hospital will make the choice who to save, and I won't be it. So in some ways, the issue of, of health inequity in general is complex, and in some ways, it feels like it doesn't have to be if we as a society decided to prioritize good health care for all. I mean, this is, we all know this, right? <clears throat> but in a world of COVID-19, where communities are dealing in triage, right now, we need rapid response, not philosophical ponderings, um, which is why I'm excited to hear from all of you today about what's going on on the ground in your communities um, and to hear practically what you need to help black and brown people survive and thrive through this difficult time. So again, I wanna thank you all so much for taking your time for being here. I wanna thank you again, Renata, and the Health Equity Initiative for all the work that you continue to do uh, and for bringing us all here together. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Tonya. This was a great inter introduction and framing to our discussion. At this time, I would like to invite our panelists to introduce themselves briefly and also to share a bit with us what makes them passionate about their work with community. Anyone who wants to start, Annette? Sure, I'll start. Um, my name is Annette Roque. Um, Annette Lewis Roque. I'm the executive director at La Nueva Esperanza, a grassroots community-based organization located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. La Nueva Esperanza is a bilingual, bicultural CBO that specializes in meeting the needs of our immediate neighboring community areas that have been devastated by the twin epidemics of substance abuse and HIV. Through various community outreach initiatives, a food and nutrition program, prevention education, HIV linkage and navigation, and supportive counseling, we're able to provide these services. One thing that makes me truly passionate about the work LNE does in the communities of North Brooklyn is connectivity. I'm passionate about this community because North Brooklyn is my community. This is who I am. This is where I'm from. This lived experience allows me to connect to our clients in a way that is unique, it's identifiable, and it's familiar. Thank you, Annette. Paulette, you want to go next? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Paulette Spencer. I work for the Bronx Community Health Network, where I'm a community engagement policy analyst. For our program, um, which is part of the All of Us Research Program, um, which is part of the um, Advancing Precision Medicine Initiative, the national level. Um, the work that we do is uh, we're a federally funded health center, and we, we, uh, we have a presence in about 21 different health centers that are linked to Montefiore Medical Center, uh, Acacia Network, and PROMESA. Um, and, and we also have a, a school health program that we, that we work with. Um, what is it that brings me to my office every day? Well, it's the ability to bring together community members that would normal, whose paths would normally never cross and to, to open a space for dialogue. And I'm speaking particularly about my program, All of Us, where I bring together community members and medical um, personnel to actually talk about the quality of health and the importance of participating as communities of color in um, medical studies. Great, thank you, Paulette. Denise, you want to introduce yourself? 
Sure. Um, thank you so much to the Health Equity Initiative uh, for having this conversation um, today. I'm Tanisha Washington. Uh, I actually work with the national organization called the National Center on Physical Health um, Activity and Disability. So we focus on individuals that have disabilities, um, and it's the national organization that's funded uh, by the Centers for Disease Control. Um, our goal is to link individuals that have disabilities uh, with the services that they need in the community, um, as well as provide them with the resources that they need to um, actively engage and increase their quality of life um, in everything that they do. Uh, I think outside of that, just my passion um, kind of centers around the idea that people are their own experts. Um, as a researcher, I think that oftentimes that's kind of, it's like the researchers have all of the expertise. And I feel like when we can engage community members um, and actively listen to them and let them know that they are their own experts um, in their community on the issues that affect them, uh, it's one thing that I'm really passionate about doing. Thank you, Tanisha. Amy. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, my name is Amy Vu. I'm the head of programs at FEAST. And uh, FEAST is based in Los Angeles. And we were really founded on the, the idea that, you know, in order for us humans to survive, not only survive, but thrive, we really need more than just our basics covered. Uh, we need to be fed emotionally, socially, and spiritually. So we have a 16-week program where uh, we bring in together 15 um, individuals and have a group discussion about um, nutrition education, healthy cooking. But we really aim to provide a supportive space where people can, you know, talk through the challenges that they experience in their day-to-day -day lives and any um, challenges that they have to make changes to their healthy diets. Uh, we started in South Los Angeles and now we're in other states like New York, Nebraska, and Virginia. And I would say the one thing that makes me passionate about community work is just knowing that when everybody has the ability to take care of them, their own health, we have the ability to be the best people we can and unlock our potential. And that just makes everyone a, a society a better place for us individually, but also for those around us. Thank you very, very much, everyone. It's very special for me today to see all of you and uh, to thanks again for participating. So uh, based on what basically Amy, just following up from what Amy said in her introduction and the importance of uh, actually working with community, what is the number one emerging need in the community you serve or represent that uh, has been uh, basically very prominent in light of COVID-19? Yes, so the community that we serve in South Los Angeles is predominantly Latino with 42% being foreign born and one in five are either undocumented or they live with a family member who is and in the lights of COVID-19, we, we already knew that these were the individuals who are working in jobs that are putting themselves at risk. They have, you know, little protection benefits, no sick leave, no overtime, no health care, fear of accessing different public programs that, you know, are supposed to protect our public. But really, because of our, our climate, um, people are afraid to access these resources. So um, what we did see um, is what we heard over and over is that many people who are working in the food service industry, you know, were losing their jobs and had no access to a paycheck. 
no unemployment benefits. And, and as a result, their families are really struggling to put um, food on their tables. So with the increase in demand, um, all of the food banks around were just having a really difficult time meeting um, the increased food access needs for this community. And so our organization has pivoted to, you know, focus on food access and really seeing that as uh, a number one priority to make sure that um, people are able to take care of their families' health. Thank you. Everyone wants to continue from there. Sure, I will. Um, COVID has magnified what we at La Nueva Esperanza have always known to be true. Health inequities are not limited to the population we are funded to serve. There's a great need for unfettered access to culturally and linguistically appropriate social services within our community. This includes specifically populations of people of color, undocumented New York City residents, non-English speakers, bicultural individuals, and individuals of all walks of life struggling with substance use or at risk of HIV. Since the citywide pause, Alani has not closed its doors. Before COVID, our clients came to us for everything and anything. Now our immediate community has come to rely on us more than ever. With everything being closed and, and, and slowly reopening, our local community residents are coming into us with urgent issues like accessing medical care, homelessness, um, language and literacy barriers with accessing technology in a contactless service model, which is what we are feeling today. Paulette or Tanisha, what is the one emerging needs that you have uh, seen in your community as a result of COVID-19? Um, well, what we've seen as an urgent need really is food insecurity. Um, so we, I think because similar to the other speakers, our communities are largely communities of color and low income. And um, here in the Bronx, I, I think many people realize that, that the access to healthy foods has traditionally been sort of a major issue in terms of um, having a, um, a nutritious um, um, access um, and, and therefore um, the impact on, on our health and, and um, people's abilities to earn a living. Um, what we're finding is that um, we've been doing a lot of work with pantries. And so we have a team of community health workers who provide services, um, sign people up for health insurance. Um, we work closely, as I said, with Montefiore Medical Center. So we, we follow up with patients um, after their, their visits. Um, and what we find now is that this network of pantries that we've been working with all along to refer people to are now um, ready to, to basically take more referrals from us and have us work with them to enhance their programming um, so that they can handle the increased volume um, of, of clients for services. So I would say food insecurity is really the key one here. Thank you. Tanisha. Yeah, so I think the interesting part um, about the number one thing is that everybody can relate to this, not just individuals with disabilities, the idea of isolation. Um, we do know that individuals with disabilities are already, um, oftentimes they feel like they're isolated, 
Um, sometimes if they have a newly acquired disability, they may not feel empowered to get out of the house. Um, they may not know how to get around in their new chair, um, just things like that, that they all automatically feel isolated in a lot of incidents. But I think now um, they really feel a lot more isolated because we're already being told um, the idea is that we need to stay at home um, in many areas. And those individuals um, already were at home, but now they can't have people come visit or they can't have a lot of other things happen um, as a result of that. And I think the language around that too. So if you um, feel like you are in the percentage of individuals uh, that would be impacted the most, you should stay put. Um, and I think that language is so discouraging for individuals that are in situations where if you do have a disability, oftentimes you have other comorbidities that go along with that. Um, so you're already isolated and then you're being told verbally that really you are the problem in a sense and you should be the one that continues to stay at home while everybody else can go out and do the things that they need to do. Um, and everybody's talked about the lack of resources. So when we already don't have a system that's set up in a way that even if you do have to stay home, where people can bring you food or things like that, that we should have as a community, um, when we don't have those tools and something like this happens, it just exasperates the idea that what are we as a community? <laughs> um, and so that's what we're seeing for people with disabilities, the idea that they are just isolated on top of isolated on top of isolated. So thank you everyone. I think it's very insightful and uh, I feel that whether it's food or safety or security or loneliness as issues, uh, we, you all pointed out the fact that basically the, the well-being and safety of our community has been further threatened because of existing inequities uh, during COVID-19. Back to Tonya now. Yeah, so I think you touched on this in your answer, but I'm going to expand on this a little bit. How does the coronavirus, how does the coronavirus pandemic underscore many of the challenges we already knew existed with health equity? Please make relevant examples from the community you serve that you guys serve. And anyone can go first. Annette? Okay. Um, COVID-19 exposed just how detrimental and fatalistic a failure to address long-term ongoing health inequities can be in our black and brown communities. Many of our African-American and Latinx clients live with one or more chronic conditions due to the health inequities they've experienced over their lifetime. Our clients can't afford or don't have cell phone or internet access necessary for teledoc sessions with their medical providers. Therefore, some of our clients are left to the mercy of scheduled appointments that are being canceled and rescheduled a month to or out. Income disparities and in food insecurities have been magnified, um, exacerbated the economic instability and vulnerability um, that our clients are experiencing is dreadful. Many of our clients live paycheck to paycheck and most are economically distressed. Uh, COVID is putting many families at financial risk to the point where they're unable to afford to maintain their home, or purchase nutritious food or, or cover healthcare related costs. Great. I'm going to go by how I see you guys. How about Amy? Thank you, Annette. 
Thank you. Yes. So in regards to the immigrant community that we serve, I mentioned that in South Los Angeles, about 20% uh, are undocumented individuals, but most of the folks who are undocumented have been living in the community for about 10 years or more. So they're very integrated. They've, you know, adapted to um, the, the culture here and we even see it with their rates of obesity after 15 years of living in our country obesity um, among immigrant um, individuals surpassed the u.s um, adult average so there's a lot of adaptations to you know in, in being introduced to the processed foods in our in our food system here in america but um you know when they're first moving here and not having the right higher paying jobs or being able to access these benefits. Um, it creates this, uh, I think somebody said it, this isolation feeling, this, this feeling that, that this country isn't for them, there's no belonging. And so add on top of that with last year, we were you know, um, struggling with the changes in the public charge policy. There was a lot of confusion about what programs people would be qualified for. And even if there was someone in the household who was legally present here, they were afraid to apply because they, they were afraid that would open an investigation for their household. Um, so even right before the pandemic um, started in February 24, that's when um, SNAP and Medicaid and Section 8 programs were um, changed to be included as part of a public charge. So this really perpetuated the fear of Know, these vulnerable communities to access the resources that they really needed. So what we saw that there was a significant need to, to outreach and to, to educate folks about their, their rights to be here and the different resources available in the community. Thank you. Paulette? Hello. Um, I would say there are two areas that um, I would underscore one is actually air quality. So we, we know that um, in certain parts of the Bronx, since um, the Bronx has many expressways that are built throughout the borough. So they sort of split areas from each other. And the pollution that comes from these expressways affect the health of the residents here. And so areas such as the South Bronx, where you have very, very high level of, um, of um, airborne particulates, fine particulates, which have always contributed to the level of asthma here, the level of um, um, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and as, as well, um, deleterious effects on perinatal health and um, high correlation to childhood asthma. And so I think with what we've seen here in the Bronx is, is that something that we've always known in terms of the question of environmental health and environmental racism um, really got highlighted through this coronavirus um, pandemic. Um, another thing I would bring up is also um, food access. Um, as I mentioned, there, there is a, we, we have the issue of access to healthy foods healthy foods that are affordable. Um, but one thing I noticed is that here in the Northeast Bronx, which was one of the hardest hit areas for the COVID-19 virus, we had, it was a neighborhood with a high percentage of retired um, medical staff who were shift workers. And because they were shift workers, for the most part, they would get their meals from neighborhood restaurants rather than cook for themselves. 
and that resulted in very poor health status. And between the South Bronx and the Northeast Bronx, those were the areas that suffered the most from COVID-19 deaths. Thank you. Anisha. Yeah, so I think everybody's done such a great job kind of summing um, everything up, but I'll um, just add that, and I think, Tanya, you mentioned this earlier, the idea of mistrust in the community, um, especially related to anything that comes from research, um, anything that comes out of universities. Um, half of my time is spent um, in a university realm, so I think the idea of mistrust has um, increased liabilities among people like really in their lives and their livelihood. So I've heard a lot of just information. Um, and as a public health researcher, I hear it and I'm like, no, no, you know, that's not correct. That's not, you know, that's not right. But because it's been ingrained in so many people, this idea of a mistrust um, in the healthcare system, um, mistrust um, just as a whole of individuals that are giving you information people will take a spin on that and kind of twist it and turn it the way that they want. Um, and then that information gets spread out. And so it creates this idea that no, if something happens to me, it's just going to happen because I'm not going to go and take a vaccine because something's in that vaccine and they're not going to give it to me. You know, things like that, that I think in some areas, don't get me wrong, make a lot of sense. Specifically um, when we're talking about people of color that have been um, disenfranchised in research studies in so many different ways. So I understand that, but I think that has been a big deal um, for, for us um, in the community and trying to speak proof to some of the things that are going um, and that are happening right now. Um, and I think Annette, you mentioned this, uh, internet access. Internet access, um, the differences between people who have internet and who don't. Um, and that goes from people that just, just working, um, how they can engage with uh, their, co-workers that are, they're required to continue working, but they don't have any access to internet and they'll, those resources haven't been provided to them, as well as people who have children. Um, they, their children had to navigate to a system of learning online and they did not have access to that. Not only did they not have access to internet, they also didn't have access to laptops. They didn't have access to the key things that they needed in order for their children to be successful. Um, and lastly, um, I think chronic diseases, we all know, uh, and Tanya, you also alluded to this earlier, the idea that people of color um, have the most, uh, they are at the most risk of chronic diseases. And what we're seeing with COVID-19 is that people who are affected the, the most are the people that already have chronic conditions. And if we know that people of color already have the highest rate of chronic conditions, we already knew from a public health perspective that this was going to be the um, situation. Specifically for a person like me, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, we already knew in the South that this was going to be exasperated due to obesity, due to um, heart disease, due to the infant mortality rates and things like that. We already knew um, that this was going to be an issue. So again, I think everybody kind of summed all of those things up. And I think that that is like everything <laughs> in one. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you for that. And I think, you know, you guys, again, you've sort of touched on this and talking about, you know, how COVID has impacted, but I, I really want to know 
what is the impact on, on health inequities from COVID um, that you're already seeing? Like, I know you are seeing things that are happening. Um, what's going on? People are, it sounds like people are devastated. People are isolated. People don't have food. And, and, and then what? Or is it just, are we just in a post-apocalyptic world? How, what, what, what's, what's happening? Anyone please weigh in. Well, in my opinion, um, and what we see, what I see a lot in our community is just um, alcohol and other drugs being the way of medicating these feelings that, that people are, are, are going through and, and, and the, the situation and the distress. And it's just um, more pronounced now than it's ever been before. Um, and, and it's, we, we, I am also seeing stigma return, um, in, in, because of COVID, but more pronounced to the substance use population or to the homeless population, which are those that we need to work with. You know, those are the, those who we are here to work with, you know, and for, and, and, and so I'm noticing a lot of that, the, the desperation and the anxiety is just causing great amounts of people um, to either relapse or use for the first time. Um, and, and alcohol has been one of the ways they've medicated themselves. Everybody I, I, I encounter smells like alcohol. You know, it's, it's like I haven't encountered anyone that I haven't, you know, been able to, to, to smell it from. So it's, it's, just, it's just frightening um, that we've been able to advance our community and we're just regressing back to the 80s, you know, and that's what's frightening that community-based organizations who are the frontline people are not being, you know, it's like shoestring budgets. They're not being uh, a, a scene for the work that we do and it's to pick up the community. Um, we haven't paused. We've been nonstop because this is what we signed up to do. This is what we're here for. And we don't get that recognition from elected officials or from funders. You know, um, we're not recognized. We're, we're the front line. We're the ones that are dealing with all of these issues that come out of a community. And the pain, the pain, you know, we, we smile when we want to cry, but we have to be the strong ones those that are out there that need us yeah it sounds like it's a lot of trauma out there amy yeah i just wanted to add <clears throat> yep i've talked a lot about food insecurity but um one thing that we our organization did with our participants was conduct a needs assessment to really understand how COVID is impacting the areas of not just health um, well-being but their social connections and their financial um stability and so one thing we've learned is about half of our participants which mostly have diet related diseases have been skipping their appointments due to fear of contracting the virus and going into the clinics and not really knowing how to navigate the healthcare system in terms of the new telehealth systems that have been set up so some are really really struggling and falling behind and without the the fresh food that we provide and deliver they've reported that you know they, they would be um, less confident about their ability to take care of their health but more to add on to what annette said is just the the mental stress and 
overload that families are really dealing with right now as if they didn't have enough before, but really not having a way to be able to cope with that, that added stress of, you know, having to school five children at home and, you know, go out to get groceries. Um, so a part of our program is actually to be able to provide um, support groups to families and have that space where people can have an outlet. But um, what's interesting is that there was a significant difference of people, the depth of sharing when we had a pro programs in person versus at home. And, um, you know, one of our hypotheses is that, you know, people don't necessarily may not feel safe at home and not be able to have that same space to open up as they would in person. So we're really thinking about, you know, how we can provide more of the mental and emotional support to families during this time, although our organization is focused on food access, but all of our feelings and emotional eating, that all ties to the way that we eat and our, our eating habits and our, our ability to take care of our health. Paulette, you wanna um, weigh in about how, um, you know, COVID's impacting the uh, inequities? Well, I think that there's a positive part of this that I've seen. Um, I've seen a lot more food distribution. I've seen parks groups actually um, partner with um, park, steward park stewardship groups, partner with other um, community-based organizations to give out food pantry packages to people on the street who are homeless or just want need the food. I, I, I go to say Harlem once a week and I see restaurants who've opened as pantries and people are just passing by. And I, I like the way they're doing it because it's not, it's not immediately obvious that it, they're functioning as a pantry. They just have um, bags of full of food just on tables right before the restaurant. So anyone can just go and take one. So I, I, I see a sort of growing sensitivity on the part of the business community to, um, to take care of the community. Um, other things that I've seen also are here in New York, I think the, the governor um, um, sponsored a program for farmers in New York State who would normally be supplying restaurants. And so rather than having that food spoil, they've been bringing that down to New York State for some of the food banks. So I think there've been positive things that are going on where you've seen people taking care of each other. But I agree, um, there's also the element of, um, you know, increased um, use of, of drugs to escape, you know, sort of a bleak reality at, at this point in time. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I observe. Thank you. And I don't know if Tanisha, you want to weigh in here or if I should kick it back to Renata. I'll say real quick that I think on a positive scale, it has opened up people's um, minds around racism and things like that, that we know have been prevalent in society, um, that people are kind of in a position now where they can't deny it to a certain extent. Um, everybody realizes their um, inherent differences that we're seeing in populations and um, just population health in general. And it's making people acknowledge it. Um, and it gives us, uh, we're in a position where because we sit at these organizations, we play a critical role 
um, and allowing and making things change at this point. So I think that has definitely been a positive um, with what we're dealing with right now. Thank you. Renata? I think a lot of you have already alluded to the uh, most promising practices uh, and, uh, or policy that you have seen emerging in your community. And I wanted to hear a bit more about that, but also hear a bit about your thoughts on your role as CBOs and community leaders in the development and implementation of policy change. And uh, so that in the aftermath of COVID-19, and so at what kind of resources you may need also in order to become, for communities to become further involved in policy change and development. Anyone who wants to go? Tanisha, you want to start since you closed? <laughs> I can start. Um, I think one of the things, Annette mentioned this earlier, is the importance of giving the funds to who actually needs them. And that's the community. Um, changing our mindset around where, who deserves to have resources, um, who deserves to receive grants. I think it's very important. What we're seeing is that communities, if they're given the resources that they need, they can mitigate their own problems, um, their own issues that they know uh, because they live in those communities, what they are, they can solve their own problems or issues, concerns, they can do it um, themselves. So maybe we need to take a different approach to how we look at who is the most viable candidates, who are the most viable candidates for funding um, and provide those communities with the resources that they need. Um, and I'll just give an example of how that's actively happening now. So um, right now we have a uh, we have funding from the Centers for Disease Control, and we're working on many grants for communities in the local Birmingham area that they are going to be able to use those funds to really work on what they want to work on um, in regards to community engagement in their community. What are some things that you all feel like you need? Use those funds um, with within that scope to kind of handle those concerns in your community. And we want you to drive that effort. I don't want to be the person telling you um, what exactly what you have to do, but be able to drive it as a community and use these funds to be able to do so. And I think that is very important um, as we're navigating who are the important people um, that can have already have trust in those communities. Who do we need to be giving these funds to to build these uh, communities as a whole? Okay. Great. So anyone else who want to continue with that or uh, bring up another point? Um, this is Paulette. I, I, would, I would completely agree with the last speaker. And um, I would say also at the, at the, po official, the policy official level, um, there have been ways to kind of cross the bridge um, by, for instance, work that we've been doing here at Bronx Community Health Network, where although we're health-based, we've done a lot of work with parks. And beyond the obvious in terms of physical exercise and so forth, I've given presentations on the importance of the quality of air that the trees in the parks um, contribute to that affects the level of asthma in the community. Or the policy that, that governs housing, public housing, where for instance, in certain areas during the summer, three quarters of the households have no air conditioning. So the air that they're breathing um, is this polluted 
air filled with particulates. And so um, actually forging um, um, alliances with the Parks Department, with the, um, the, the policymakers that govern housing could be a way to really um, get them to advocate on your behalf um, um, simply by, by creating relationships with them so that they see how we're all linked based on evidence. Great, thank you. Amy or Annette, do you want to add something to this question? Um, yeah, uh, okay, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Adding. I'm just adding on to Tanisha's point really quickly uh, in development of community leaders. So we actually share a building with an organization called Esperanza Community Housing, and they have a six-month training to um, to train leaders and to become promotoras and be exactly that role and, and being from the community and being the face of community and outreaching to understand what, what are the needs from um, the community they represent. And I think really putting an effort to making sure that these roles that, that are important, that they receive a higher wage, uh, you know, good paying jobs too, and also the technological assistance to be able to help them do the work that you know will likely be important in these next two years and um, just add to their capacity. So in Los Angeles, we have a um, LA Food Policy Council that um, has developed a food advocates program. So they, they're, they're training individuals about how policy works locally, different areas of the food system so that people are really becoming aware of different ways they become involved. Um, because there's so many um, ways to do that and it all kind of, um, you know, takes a little bit of training and skill development, but just really opening up those opportunities to individuals from the community. Thank you. Annette, you want to add anything? Um, um, I agree with everything they said, but I think that um, it, it, there's a number of practices and policies emerging emerging, you know, but increased opportunities through forums such as this to identify the health inequities experienced by people of color in New York City and efforts to address um, increased access to social services. Most importantly, talk at the city and state level to increase funding directed at social service organizations uh, to enhance existing program services and implement new services. Um, but COVID forced the health community to see just how important CBOs like LNE and the others that are on the call are on the overall health of the clients we serve. And discussions and meetings like this forum help CBOs articulate needs and barriers that we hope are being considered in the drafting of policies and funding allocation. Thank you. So our last question is that uh, your ideas for specific policy solution that may address these emerging needs that we have discussed uh, at, at, at that in light of COVID-19. So I, I don't know, Paulette, you want to start? Um, I'm just trying to, to differentiate the order. <laughs> I, I would say um, the policies that we have now that target immigrants, um, that, that actually making services um, um, available to everyone, um, especially in the case of a highly contagious 
disease would be something that would be a critical starting place. Um, because of course we know that when you um, stigmatize someone as being undocumented, for instance, um, in, in, case, in situations that we're in right now, you actually drive people further underground. So you get people who will stay home rather than go to the hospital. Absolutely. So I think that um, there's policies that are very open and, and welcoming to everyone because it's in everyone's interest that everyone is treated um, would be very important. Great, thank you. Anyone else who want to discuss their own idea for policy solution? Um, I think we need funding for CBOs involved with responding to the needs of the community. So that policy translates to CBOs being recognized and funded for all the work that they do to meet health inequities in our community. We want to be able to solve any problems for our community without the burden of being limited by who we're funded to help. And I think we need policies that allow for the implementation of real-time funding to meet emerging needs during any emergency that interrupts service delivery and being able to meet the needs of our clients and community. Um, for example, many agencies have reported um, being able to positively impact uh, our client-centered service delivery by integrating technologies such as smartphones and video conferencing and phone group conferencing and emails and uh, during social distancing. But at La Nueva Esperanza, we're busy with the task of navigating our clients through the struggles of that contactless uh, service delivery in today's world, yet we're not supported as we should be. We're not, we're not supported as we should be. And, and, and we need your help, help like um, from, from, from um, Health Equity to be able to help write these policies and keep us involved in them so that we can make a difference. Thank you very much. Emmy, uh, Tanisha, you want to add to this and share your policy idea? Um, I think that this just shows us that everybody just doesn't need access to healthcare. They need access to quality health care. And there's a difference between just having access to care and having access to quality health care. Um, and I think it also allowed people to, um, to Paulette's point earlier, to be more sensitive because once individuals make it out of the hospital, if they have a COVID diagnosis, they're realizing that everybody's bills are high. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, what your background is. These bills are very expensive. Um, and if everybody had access to these services and everybody had additional services to help pay for, for healthcare um, so that everybody can live, try their best to live a healthy life, um, a lot of these issues could be negated uh, to a certain degree. I think all of the other speakers have addressed my uh, primary uh, wish for more inclusion of um, all populations and communities that I would just add in regards to the food access, you know, um, in response to the increased food needs, we've had states have been able to relax their application requirements for um, SNAP. They've been able to increase the allotment, um, but that's not enough just to have that right now during coronavirus. We need that for our communities. 
um, even after the pandemic. And we really need to see SNAP as an investment in the community. Uh, we know that every dollar spent in SNAP brings back a dollar fifty to the local economy, which benefits, you know, all of the workers that are involved in um, making sure we have food on our plate. Um, but it's also, um, you know, the lifeline of support to be sure that people are not having going hungry and they have the right nutrition to be able to take care of their health. So I'm really advocating for more support for um, SNAP funding. Thank you very much. This was so very interesting. Now back to Tonya from uh, for some thoughts. I just want to do a quick speed round with everyone, giving you each sort of a minute to give your closing thoughts. I mean, you guys have been amazing, and I just I thank you so much. Um, it's 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 touched me tremendously, and I'm going to carry our conversation with us. Would love to hear closing thoughts for everyone. One minute. Who should we start with? Who went last? Amy, you want to start? <laughs> Um, just listening to all the speakers today, it's very clear that all of the inequities that we knew in our system has just been exasperated. So where do we start? And I think the, the best way to start is just thinking locally in our own communities of how we can provide immediate support and you know, advocating for the policies that will take much longer until we get the system in the place that um, you know, we need it to be to make sure everybody has the resources they need to take care of their health and their family's health and their community's health. Well said. Next, uh, Annette, how about you? Yeah, um, I want to thank you for allowing us to be part of this discussion and for bringing us all together. And, you know, while, while we're funded to serve uh, an HIV or substance abuse population, as a CBO, we're faced with the challenges and needs of our entire immediate community and to understand those needs um, of the community and its people, you have to be there on the front lines. Um, that unique real-time feedback coupled with inclusive policy, um, it, it can promote expanding health insurance coverage, improve the capacity and number of providers in underserved communities and increase the knowledge base on causes and interventions to reduce disparities. And together we can do that we are a powerful force it's all women online right so i mean this is a powerful force we have here Paulette? um i think in my own work with the all of us program the research program which for me includes bringing community members and medical personnel to together to talk about this mistrust um um, I think it's important that as we move forward that those kind of conversations really um, increase so that we can find the solution, well, to the medical problem, which is what the vaccines or the treatments, but that um, we actually start a dialogue going. Um, as I say, there are people who, for whatever reasons, choose not to go to a hospital especially at a time like this. I think having those discussions, particularly with physicians who are very familiar with the community, physicians of color, or um, community-based organizations that focus on clinical studies in communities of color, are very important to basically bring to the fore for people to see that those discussions are taking place outside of the medical establishment. And to use those discussions to then 
try and influence policy in whatever way possible. Great, Nisha. It's important that we realize that we're all in this together. Um, that's kind of been my slogan that I've been using lately. Um, I think as a nation, we know that there are so many divisions happening right now. Um, and I think this has allowed us to realize that we're really all in this together. If I'm affected by COVID-19, ultimately as a community, you're going to be affected by it as well. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And I'm also just excited that um, just to be on the call with everybody uh, that has like a faith in the community, it's nice to talk to other people that are actively out there doing community work and just to say thank you all individually for the work that you're doing. Um, things will get better. Uh, people will notice uh, in the future how important we are as organizations and the work that we do and to continue even against all odds, because it can be very challenging to continue to do that work despite it all because we are definitely helping um, one person by one person in these communities and that one person lends itself to additional people. So I just want to say thank you all and thanks so much Renata and Tanya uh, for allowing us to have these conversations. Well, Tanisha, I want to thank you. I want to thank Annette. I want to thank Amy. I want to thank Paulette. I want to thank you, Renata. All of you guys who are doing this work. I have to say, you know, what I've heard today um, which does make me really emotional, is that COVID has had a devastating impact on our community that is going to last a long time. And um, you guys are out there, as I said earlier, doing the triage, trying to, you know, hold it together as best you can um, through this. Uh, and so, you know, like Amy said, you've got to take care of yourselves so that you can take care of your community. Um, but at the same time, what I'm hearing from you all is hope and optimism, and I'm grateful for that, that there is a coming together of people, that we are thinking about community, that our eyes are open to the inequities. We can't deny it anymore. Um, and, and what I'm hearing out there a little bit, too, is this conversation that is emerging about an anti-racist model of care. That, 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 that terminology to me is really important an anti-racist model of care, which is a holistic care, right? I mean, it, it's not just when you get to the hospital or, or when you're sick and you're being cared for. How do we, through you people, you guys who are on the ground with your community, really serve the people, making sure they're not hungry, that there's food available, that mentally and spiritually, that they are supported and cared for, that they recognize that they do matter and that they have something to offer our communities um, and, our, and our nation. And as you, Tanisha, just said, that we are all in this together. Um, and as a, as a human species, we cannot survive if the most vulnerable of us are so devastated. Um, so with that, again, I just, I just thank you all so much for the work that you do. Um, I support you, I, you know, I'm here for you, and I'm trying to do my part out there too. Uh, because as you said, Annette, like we're all women here trying to do it, and we do have the power. Uh, right. And we just have to force, force it, and we won't stop until we get there. So, so thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.
Thank you. So thank you everyone on behalf of Alt Equity Initiative. I want to thank Annette and Amy and Paulette and Tanisha and Tonya for this very great wrap up. And I also want to pick up on something that Tanisha said that we are all on this together. And I think it never has in this moment the epidemic has showcased that we're all interconnected and that taking care of our brothers and sisters is not just the right thing to do, is not just a human right issue, but this team that helps the health and well-being of all of our communities. So I want to thank you all for your time today. And I also want to say that this is just the beginning of a dialogue that we are here for you, that we try to support the community engagement, we advocate for it, we respect and value work, and we know that is fundamental in our communities, and also that each of your community has specific needs to be attended. And that's also the importance of community engagement, bringing up those specific needs. So thank you everyone for a very interesting and emotional conversation and uh, so more to follow.